Uh, someone asked, what does it sound like to take the refugees in Pali? I'll let Achan answer that question. <clears throat> I'll chime in. <laughs> uh, we had one a Theravada monk who was uh, African, uh, an African Theravada monk, and he was back in, in Africa going around telling some of the, the local people about uh, uh, how important it is to, to take the, the three refuges. And he's going around and as he could see that people were kind of furrowing the brows a bit. So what is it? And he said, well, we already have so many people and limited resources. Where are we going to put all these refugees? <coughs> <laughs> so he had to clarify, no, a refuge is a place of safety. So in Pali, <coughs> this, this is done in this, with this chanting. Buddhang Saranga Chami Dhammang Saranga Chami Sanghang Saranga Chami Dutiyampi Buddhang Saranga Chami Dutiyampi Dhammang Saranga Chami Dutiyampi Sanghang Saranga Chami Tatiyampi Buddhang Saranga Chami Tatiyampi Dhammang Saranga Chami Tatiyampi Sanghang Saranga Chami Carrying on from this morning, we were talking about the differences between the theory and the, uh, how things manifest in practice. And then this gets into our experiences with uh, teachers that we've lived, in, lived with uh, in our various traditions. Now, <clears throat> typically, like when I was in college and reading about Buddhism or maybe early... Uh, uh, stereotypes of Mahayana and Theravada, then you would have, well, the, the Mahayana path is uh, uh, dedicated to the benefit of all beings, and the Theravada path is just for the people who only want to save themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, that's the way it is. No, the, in practice, then, we find the wide spectrum for, for each of the traditions, because the uh, for example, in the Tibetan tradition, there may be the aspiration to benefit all beings, but then uh, you have this uh, history of, of the yogis going off into caves. And so, well, how are you directly benefiting any sentient beings that way? Well, of course they are, but you know, there's not the, necessarily that direct communication. Or even uh, typically in, in Mahayana countries, there'll be more reclusive communities that grow their own food, uh, located in the mountains, etc., where mainly the Theravadan monasteries have this direct link with the community. So they're always interacting on a, on a daily basis by necessity, usually around alms round. So you have the theory, but then you have the, the, the daily practice of it too. And so in, also in, uh, I mean, like our teacher, Ajahn Chah, you know, if anyone saw how he lived his life, then you could just see he was just giving, giving, giving of his time, energy, teachings all the time. Right? I mean, up to a certain stage, you know, he would just be practicing intensely. Um, getting very little sleep, just doing a very intensive meditation practice. Uh, but then once he did reach a certain level of attainment and people were coming to the monastery, he gave and he gave and he gave of his time. And I don't, I mean, some people will say, oh, well, he went through his Theravada phase, now he's in his Mahayana phase. And I don't really see it like that. I think it's more like, that's the, the natural unfolding of, of, an, of a life of practice, a life dedicated to the Dhamma. You know, initially, uh, we need to spend time in seclusion, you know, working on, we call it working on ourselves, but even, even 
even if we reduce our anger just a little bit, that's the greatest gift we can give to everyone else in our family and the people we live with and work with. So it, it seems to be a false dichotomy that's set up mm-hmm. that in reality, you know, it tends to fall apart. You know, when, whenever we, whatever we do to reduce our own defilements, that is beneficial for other people. And even if some uh, Ajahn is living in a cave, having no direct uh, experience other than coming once a day and, and people put food in his bowl and he goes back up to his cave, for me, that, that helps me because it gives me inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives me inspiration to know that, that someone is dedicating themselves to that level of practice. So, you know, and to the degree that we help others, right? This idea that, um, oh, you're just giving, giving, giving to others, but that also helps ourselves, right? I mean, that's a tremendous renunciation of, like, the idea of my time, my energy, um, all personal boundaries. I mean, as monastics, as teachers, we encounter this all the time. You know, just because the, the amount of requests for teaching are, are endless. Just walking <clears throat> down the street looking like this, your public property, believe me, <laughs> there is no such thing as personal space. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, you have the whatever we read about in the books between the differences between Vajrayana, Mahayana, and Theravada, then you have the actual practice and you realize it manifests in a very similar way. um, We have these Buddhist monastic gatherings that have been going on now 25 or 26 years. I haven't actually been able to attend the last few years just because of where I was and when it was and I had another commitment. I remember a number of years ago, going to one of these monastic gatherings. And at the breakfast table, I sat down with a senior Theravada monk from a Bayagiri monastery that I knew. And then this very young uh, monk, American monk from the Tibetan tradition that I think had been ordained, you know, two months or something. And very young, 22 or something. And he sits down and he says to this very senior, like amazing monk, well, in your tradition, you're just about individual liberation. What about your command? I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> is he really saying this? <laughs> and very kindly, very patiently, the monk from Abayagiri goes, well, you know, I don't know really how it's all going to unfold, whether it's like liberation, enlightenment, bodhisattva. He goes, I'm just trying to do my practice and develop my kindness and patience as much as I can. I was like, what a great answer. You know, this little sort of boy scout. Do, 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 do. What about all sentient beings? You know, that, <laughs> and that's kind of what it is. We just do, I mean, for me, I was attracted to this tradition for not, it wasn't logical. It was just sort of this intuitive. I mean, I met the Dalai Lama and I'm like, I want to be like him when I grow up. That was pretty much what it was like. So I think we were attracted to a tradition and then we just start practicing. But like Achan says, all these theoretical, you know, delineations and cut and dried and distinctions, like as it really turns out, it, it's not really like that. It's sort of like this conceptual you know, imputation of all of these categories, but in our lived lives as Buddhist practitioners and monastics, it sort of just doesn't really work like that so much. I've got a, a couple of good friends who are nuns in the in the um, Theravadan tradition, and they have this uh, monastery in Placerville. Some of you may know them and have been there, and one of them, we were talking once, and she just goes, You know, I just, I mean, here she is, none in the Theravada tradition, you know, senior. She's like, I couldn't practice without my bodhisattva vows. She's like, I took bodhisattva vows from the Dalai Lama years ago. And that's that's such a core fundamental part of our practice. So I think the boundaries, you know, are shifting and merging a little bit. You know, even though like we have our root traditions and our core traditions, but like I said, it's much more theoretical, these sharp dividing lines than it really ends up to be in practice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the flavor of Western Buddhism, Mm -hmm. or this phase of Buddhism as it it comes, you know, initially to the West, but really global. Yeah. as the mingling of all different traditions and people being able to to choose 
uh, specific practices that do seem to work with them. I mean, the drawback, of course, having said that, is if you go to the other extreme and never really settle down in any one Commit, tradition, I mean, yeah. you have to, in order to take any tradition deeply or to, to really get the benefit, you have to dedicate yourself, um, you know, wholeheartedly to one path. But then the actual skillful means and sometimes meditation techniques, there's no reason why you can't take, uh, you know, a, a bit of bit of this Zen mm. teaching, a bit of this uh, skillful means from the Tibetan tradition, and and work it in. I mean, these days we have Christian monks doing vipassana retreats, yeah. right? I mean, it doesn't mean that they they have approached a, a completely secularized relationship with with Christianity, um, but they're able to kind of work that in right. with their larger worldview. I have a good friend who's a senior monk in the Tibetan tradition, originally from Australia, and he has the great good fortune to be spiritually guided directly by the Dalai Lama. I don't know how that worked out. It's like, dang. But anyway, at one point, so he goes to the Dalai Lama to get practice advice, and at one point the Dalai Lama says, okay, go to Burma for like a year and learn how to meditate in a Burmese monastery. He's like... You're doing these practices, but your mind is like all over the place. You need to go to Burma. So at His Holiness the Dalai Lama's recommendation, he went and practiced in a monastery in Burma for a year. And he was telling me the benefits to his meditation of just doing one style, you know, for an entire year, just, you know, focusing. And then he said, then I could come back and do these practices in the Tibetan tradition with so much clarity and focus because of spending a year on this one Burmese style of, of meditation practice. So mm -hmm. you hear stories like that more and mm -hmm. more and more, even of our traditional Asian masters sending us to kind of cross over to the other tradition. I mean, there's very few that are as open-minded as His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but there are more and more. There's a... a young, youngish, in his, I think he's still in his 50s, Tibetan Lama who teaches at the center in London and who's been there for 30 years, who's really good friends with Ajahn Sumedho at a, from, formerly from Amarvati Monastery. And they were really good friends and hung out together all the time and it really influenced this Tibetan Lama's teachings and he drew a lot more from Pali sources in his teachings than a typical... Tibetan Lama, so you do really hear, you know, stories of much more sort of crossover in terms of the traditions. Yeah. What's next? Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mike. Where's Mike? No, we. It's sort of spontaneous. When you were originally talking, Ajahn, about your tradition, it seemed like your goal was to actually exit. Like the top, 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 you are out of here, right? Is that the same with the Tibetan? Or, dude, is there eventually an exit? Or are you the Bodhisattva helping, helping, helping forever? So, do you, you, you answer your half of the question first, and then I'll answer mine. People would try to, to pin the Buddha down at what happens after the death of an Arhat, or what happens after the death of a Buddha. And they would try to say, well, does that being continue to exist? And Buddha said, no. Does no longer exist? Said, no. <laughs> Does he neither exist nor not exist? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, however the question was framed, the Buddha said, would not say, no, that's the way it is. Partially because how he did define it was the what we identify with as body sensations, sense contact, feelings, emotions, thought constructions, our consciousness, all of this will cease without remainder. And part of what we're trying to use to conceptualize is, our, is, our, is our, the concepts are within that. So we're trying to conceptualize of something that is by definition beyond the reach of of any of our physical or mental being. So no matter how the Buddha would try to describe it, the listeners would misunderstand it. So in that sense, he, uh, he would normally remain silent with that question or, 
or be very uh, succinct in his answers. He did say it was the highest happiness. And it's clear he was not referring to a perpetual heaven realm. No, definitely not that. Uh, but it's because the Buddha gave almost nothing to grasp onto, some people times find that frustrating. And so it's, it's easier to think of some eternal pure realm of existence or some, it's just maybe uncomfortable for people not having a clearly defined goal or endpoint. So then, as sometimes the skillful means teachers will, will give other answers, other ways of explaining it. But essentially the Buddha said it's the cessation of our mental and physical being. Yeah. <laughs> and in the Tibetan tradition, so we talk about Buddhahood being the ultimate goal. And this is one of the things that we found was quite different between our traditions when we were teaching last year. And in the Tibetan tradition, we teach that the Buddha, as I mentioned before, has all of these extraordinary qualities. One of the qualities we say is the quality of being able to emanate in whatever form would benefit beings, right? So we talk about emanation bodies. The Sanskrit is nirmanakaya. And the Tibetan for that is tulku. So sometimes you'll hear about tulkus in the Tibetan tradition. These reincarnate lamas are referred to as tulkus, which literally means emanation bodies. So they're seen as Buddhas who emanated like the Dalai Lama in that form to benefit us. So this is, this is in the Tibetan tradition, we say that a Buddha has the ability to emanate countless of these form bodies that could be anything. It doesn't need to be a Buddhist master in maroon robes with a shaved head at all. It could be anything, anything that would benefit others. And we say it's effortless, meaning if the sentient being has the karma, has enough virtue, the emanation will be there without wasting a second. It's not like Oh, Carol needs an emanation to show up for her Tuesday afternoon. Okay, I'll fling one out there, right? It's just like this, you know, spontaneous thing. So sometimes we do something in the Tibetan tradition that I like to refer to as pronoia, which is kind of a word that I made up. Imagining that anybody you run into could be an emanation of a Buddha, conspiring to get you enlightened. So instead of paranoia, everybody's out to get me. Pronoia is like, everybody's trying to get me enlightened. <laughs> you know, especially the really anno annoying coworker. Like that could totally be a Buddha emanation trying to teach you patience. Why not? They don't need to show up, oh, you know, some like amazing being. So it's, it's a practice that we do because you don't know until you're at a very high level of realization what the realizations... So it's kind of this thing that we do in, you know, kind of a tricky way of making everything into the path and everybody that you run into. I've got a lesson from that person. It could be a Buddha emanation trying to teach me something. And it's kind of a cool way of going through life with that pronoid. So especially the really annoying coworker. Oh, thank you so much, Buddha, for emanating as the person to teach me patience. I really needed that. You know, and our teachers sometimes say, if everybody just pats you on the head and says, oh, you're so awesome, you're just going to get arrogant and it's not really going to help. Like you need those people that are going to kind of rub off the rough edges. But anyway, that's, that's one of the differences between our schools is just the idea of how Buddhas kind of manifest in this whole idea of these emanations effortlessly in. So I always say, you know, for you all in this room on a really nice Saturday afternoon in May, what are the chances you haven't run into one yet? I'd say zilch. So keep pronoid. It's a cool practice. <laughs> <clears throat> so theor in theory, this tends to be one of the biggest differences between the traditions. <clears throat> and it has to do with rebirth and what happens after the death of the Buddha, which is uh, about as theoretical and far removed as we can get from our <laughs> daily life practice. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Right? And, and on one level, it's, 
it seems silly to even argue about it, although Buddhist scholars have been arguing for thousands of years <laughs> about it. Um, but on another level, I guess it's, it's important to just to clarify, mm. oh, these are our, our definite differences. Yeah. From the Theravada point of view, any form of rebirth is impossible after a certain level of insight. So uh, insight takes place in, f enlightenment takes place in four distinct stages according to the Pali tradition. And after the first stage then uh, the pr a process takes over which will lead one to full enlightenment um, at most within seven rebirths. And from that point on, even if one made the determination to continue to be reborn, it would be impossible. At least, so that's our understanding. So in, the, in Thailand, we, we also have the tradition of people making of, a vow to become Buddhas. And as far as I know, in Asia, it's the only country where the, the, the Bodhisattva and the Arhat path uh, really coexist. Not as separate traditions, but within one tradition. Mm -hmm. And so there are, there are many uh, great masters, there have been many great masters throughout the Thai uh, history of Buddhism who have actually been bodhisattvas rather than arhats mm. or once returners, etc. Right? And on the surface you would not know the difference. Right? It's only kind of when you get into the, more, uh, the, uh, the inner circles and this master is able to read the minds and know who is who at what level. And in private, they may say, this, this great teacher is actually Bodhisattva. And that is uh, regarded with great respect, mm -hmm. right? With, within the Theravada tradition, or certainly within the Thai forest tradition. So if we know one of the masters uh, is, is a Bodhisattva, then uh, they have made that determination and that vow to stay in samsara, exactly, mm. as, but they, they, that determination stops them from realizing the first level of enlightenment, mm. right? Mm. But their, their uh, wholesome qualities, what we call parami or paramitas, have become so well developed that there's hardly any defilements mm. showing. I mean, mm. these are very, very pure beings. And so you get, uh, there are a number who are, are, are well-regarded or generally known in the Thai forest tradition. One, for example, is Lumpur Tuat, who lived uh, many hundreds of years ago, but is considered by our meditation masters to still be in samsara, mm -hmm. and thus mm -hmm. able to be contacted, you know, mm -hmm. and, and is there specifically to help. And there's, uh, there's another one who is like the patron saint of Tudong monks. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so if you're in trouble when you're on, uh, wandering through the forest or the jungle, um, you can kind of so, you know, help a bit. And uh, <laughs> There's so a tiger really, I'm in a tough spot here. <laughs> and uh, and you know, the idea that that you'd be someone is looking out for you, mm. still in in the realm of mm. samsara. And uh, but on the surface, the average person wouldn't know. You know, mm -hmm. they're so they both seem so uh, very pure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What's your understanding of dewas at this point in your practice? I know you said when you started it, w it was neither here nor there in a way, and I'm just curious what your understanding is now. And, and I have a working belief that devas exist, right? Based on um, stories, many stories I've heard from teachers who, um, from all my experience, do actually seem to have psychic powers and be able to see and communicate. Yeah. And especially the, the teacher that I spent my first um, year with as a monk, uh, he, he seems to have that ability. And he'll... So there's many, many stories. It's not just him, but many, many stories. Now, some stories... I tend to be a bit of a skeptic, you know, when it comes to stuff. So... Uh, I don't, some stories you can get, get the flavor, oh, this seems to be an exaggeration, or maybe it's more devotional rather than real. But over the years, it does seem like it is, it is a very real thing, that there are, there are beings who are essentially consciousness around us. We may not visually be able to see them, but they're still around. Um, 
So there, especially in biographies of mm -hmm. masters, there would be more specific uh, details about that. So that's one thing. There, there's no reason that these masters would lie. They wouldn't have any, anything to gain by mm -hmm. misrepresenting the truth. Now one teacher came to our monastery in New Zealand in the early years, and we have, we have 150 acres of, of forest and hills and, and streams and whatever. And, and when he first came, I said, would you be able to check to see if there are any, either any, any devas or any, uh, any beings who are suffering? Because, mm. you know, there were a lot of fighting. New Zealand was a place of warfare between the British and the Maori, and there was a lot of uh, heavy-duty violent fighting, or mm. just between the Maori tribes themselves, uh, and especially the area a bit south of us. So I wondered if, if there was still any of that, any of those mm -hmm. beings, mm -hmm. right, around. And, and he generally then goes into Samadhi, you know, and the next day he said, uh, well, he didn't see, say, any ghosts or any, any being, unseen beings that were suffering, but also he didn't see any devas. He said it was really strange with all this forest. Mm -hmm. So he said he sent out an invitation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like, <clears throat> I don't know, it's just... <laughs> Can you send out, it's like a group email. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, you just send a, send a broadcast and invitation. And, uh, and so he oh, yeah. sent out this invitation, essentially, I don't know the specifics, but he said, hey, there's a really good piece of real estate here, beautiful forest, um, Come on, uh, sangha yeah. practicing, or people <laughs> meditating, it's a wholesome environment, there's a little waterfall, some ponds, it's really nice. And, uh, it's like a real estate <laughs> It's a real estate It's like, it's, it's right, it's, you know, it's a rural location, but conveniently located. Located to for Auckland, <laughs> 45 minutes away, yeah. public transportation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, the next time I spoke with him, he was back in Thailand, but the next time I spoke with him, you know, he's, he said, uh, I don't know if this was literally or is this a metaphor, uh, like, like a metaphor, but he said, now there's Davis in every tree there. Wow, you never told me that, dude. Come on, I've been there so yeah. many times. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to brag. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. Davis in every tree. So I'm coming back. <laughs> Davis in every tree. Wow. So, I, yeah. Just so it, the there is sometimes, the you know, you go into the forest and there's a big old tree. You know, I, whether there's literally a being living in that tree or this waterfall or, or not. I mean, this is more the earthbound devas, not the higher mm -hmm. realms. Whether they're literally there or not, it helps me develop a reverence for nature. Right? Mm -hmm. So, like when we go into the jungle typically in Thailand, um, we will ask permission from mm -hmm. the devas yeah, who normally live there. We ask permission from the animals with the idea that, look, I'm coming into your area and with, with your permission, I, I ask uh, you to allow me to meditate and practice the Dhamma. Mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. rather than just thinking, well, I'm going to go to the jungle and practice, you know, it's like asking for permission and have a sort of reverence you know, it helps to have a reverence for the uh, natural environment. Mm. And we definitely also have that in the Tibetan tradition. I mean, most traditional cultures are, you know, totally acknowledge that there's beings that live, you know, in rocks in different areas. And we do the same thing. We have a ritual that we do before we do retreats to ask permission to the local. I mean, sometimes we translate the word landlord of the place please give me permission and we make offerings and all of that. And for a lot of, um, you know, kind of Eurocentric scientific reductionist people, it's weird, right? Like, I never really had a big issue at all with karma and reincarnation. All of that made sense to me. And I don't have a big issue with believing that there's beings of different realms that I can't perceive directly with my five senses, like that was never a big stretch for me. However, doing these rituals is so not part of the culture that I was raised in. It, it, it is a bit of a stretch to just go, oh right, before I do retreat I need to make offering to these dudes that like inhabit the place. 
But it's not so much of a stretch that I won't do it. It's just not part of how I, even now, all these years later, I think because I just wasn't raised with those beliefs, but I also don't have any problem thinking, I mean, I... Maybe it's because I did so many drugs when I was growing up. Like, I have no problem believing that things are not restricted to what I can perceive with the five senses. Like, I let go of that idea if I ever even had it long ago. So like Achan says, and I think the more you realize how much you don't know, and the more you realize, wow, with practice, your perceptions just get more and more fine-tuned. Why wouldn't you be able to, and this is just a normal kind of side effect of concentration, is that you're able to perceive beings of different realms of existence in the same way that we can sit here and perceive each other. There was a, a, a Lama, Tibetan Lama, who lived at our kind of home monastery in Kathmandu, who was a healer. And he would see that people were sick due to what we usually call in the Tibetan tradition spirit harm. Like some but he would come in and he'd be like, oh, you've got a Naga hanging out. right? Like, don't you see him? He's right there. And you'd just be like, whoa. You know? <laughs> and then he'd do some offering or do some practice to get rid of this, like, spirit or, you know, being that was interfering with you karmically. There was some connection or something. So there were all these stories that he could just, like, totally, he would be like, well, yeah, duh, no wonder you're sick. Look at that dude, and you're all... <laughs> so, yeah, so that's in our tradition, too. And in most most traditional culture, I mean, you know, European civilization and kind of modern technological society is, like, in the vast minority of believing of just what we can perceive with our five senses, you know, so it's sort of like, who's right? Technological, scientific reductionist culture or everybody else, you know? So, yeah. What's that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's debatable. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> And then we've got another another couple of written questions too. Yeah, um, I had one comment, and just a quick comment and a question. I I've actually spent a bit of time in Africa, and I can just tell you, when I hear that you go out in the forest and and meditate, like I I actually can understand that would be very frightening. Like I understand something about like being able to do that and I um, respect it very much. I'm not sure I would be brave enough to do it myself. Um, and I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about long retreats and it seems like long retreats are important in both traditions and how what, what you recommend to students about that. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can begin. Um, I think, you know, Often when people are just beginning to practice, if they want to do a retreat, we often recommend first that they do group retreats if they want to really do anything. I mean, even a long weekend or 10 days or something, somehow with the container of the group and the guidance of a teacher, it can be less intimidating. Like often people will say, oh, I want to do what you did. You know, they've been meditating for six months. I want to do what you did and go into long retreat. And I'm like, no, let's just ease into it a little bit here. And then I also believe that complete solitude and silence is also really helpful and just starting out gradually. I mean, to really go into long retreat of many, many weeks, months, or years, you really do need to build up to it and be ready, mostly also in terms of really understanding well what the obstacles to your meditation are and what the antidotes to obstacles that might arise. Because otherwise you just get stuck and you just freak out and waste your time if you don't have a teacher there available to check in with. You know, it's sort of a, you know, some people are attracted to that as an idea of like, I want to be a serious yogi too. But you build up to it. You really need to know what you're doing before you go into a situation. Like when I went into my first three-year retreat, I'd been preparing in a way for a really long time. I mean, ever since I got into Tibetan Buddhism. And then <clears throat> the instructions I got were, hey, you're going to be on your own. You need to be really ready to know what to do when you have problems and difficulties in the retreat. I studied 
the practices, I was doing a specific practice for the first three year retreat and I was studying the Tibetan text of that practice very intensely for two and a half years before going into that retreat. So it's not something you just do on a whim. I think it's something that can be amazing and you know, I, I really recommend for for anybody two weeks a year if you can get in go into solitary retreat for two weeks a year. It's extraordinary. And to me, before I did long retreats, I had a teacher who kind of gave me that instruction and it really changed everything. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm serving the Dharma and I'm working for these Dharma centers. I don't have time for a retreat. And then I had one teacher say, I want you to do at least two weeks a year you got to promise me. And even that amount of time of really devoting to practice, I found amazing. So, yeah, everything from there all the way up to, you know, years. But don't, don't, uh, I've known people who've done all this preparation to go into multi-year retreats and left after two weeks because they just weren't ready. So you do have to be ready. Yeah. In the forest tradition, it's, uh, there's not a retreat culture per se, right? Um, the, the modern culture we have with, you know, <clears throat> doing retreats and being off retreats and then things kind of gradually unravel and then you go to be in retreat again, things unravel. That, that tends to, that came more from, I think, from Burmese tradition that mm. was inherited from that and and somewhat maybe from other traditions. In the forest tradition, it was a bit more of a, uh, the idea was integration right from the start. Right? Uh, even though <clears throat> when a, a student was ready, then the master might send them off into the jungle to practice, but only when they were ready. Right? To send someone off into the jungle where there's wild animals and it's very dark and you're on your own, maybe a fear of ghosts, then uh, that's not recommended for, for you know, if someone doesn't have a good foundation because they can just end up being stuck in fear, um, uh, can be detrimental rather than helpful. So in our tradition, training as a community uh, is given a lot of emphasis. Right? We train, we do things communally, especially in the Ajahn Chah tradition. Uh, whether that's meditation, alms round, eating, working, we're always kind of doing things as a group. However, we do try to do it all as if we were in retreat. So the idea, we never have the idea of complete silence. And, and uh, the Buddha actually said for the rains retreat, it's, it's not allowed to keep silent for the whole retreat. However, the, our general standard is to speak little, right? which is actually in a sense, more difficult. Right? It can be pleasant. I mean, often we would like to just put a note around our necks saying, keeping silent. And then we don't really have to in interact with other people. Um, but it's even harder sometimes just to, to speak, but only say what is really needed, necessary, beneficial, which then is a whole process of what is actually beneficial, right? You know, to what do, I mean, there's sometimes small talk is actually beneficial. Sometimes it's just overcomes the insecurity of being, being uncomfortable with silence. Um, and then uh, when the whole community is actually is speaking very little and just saying what is, is necessary, it feels like everybody's on retreat. But because every day is pretty much like yesterday, right? There's not a lot of difference day to day then everyone knows what to do, knows the schedule, and you kind of do this at this time, and then everyone kind of cleans up and silently goes about the business, and then we go do this. And, and so there's it, it a real uh, powerful feeling of quietude within the forest monasteries, the good ones. Uh, so it has that flavor of retreat. Now, even within our training monastery, we would send people off into smaller branch monasteries. For example, I mean, we had our international monastery, but then that had two branch monasteries, one on the border with Laos, uh, right on the Mekong River, 
And I spent a lot of time there. We just had some very simple wooden and bamboo and grass huts. And maybe 22 hours of the day we would be alone. Right? Now we weren't specifically on retreat, but that's just the lifestyle. You know? uh, we were on our own maybe 20, 22 hours of the day. And then we come down in the morning, we gather for alms round, go on alms round together, essentially in silence, unless there was something to talk about, and come back and maybe, you know, there's a bit of communication, everything okay, how you doing, how's meditation going, but then uh, after the meal, then we go back to our huts, and, uh, you know, we're essentially on retreat, but we don't call it retreat. But then maybe after after a period of time, whether it's two weeks or a few months, go back to our main monastery, which is much more busy with people coming and going and duties, and, and then see how that affects us. So try to have this constant interaction between a bit more emphasis on solitude, more emphasis on, on uh, group activity, and that tends to create a balance. You know, it tends to... And often we're, f- we're forced into situations. For the first five years, we're not allowed to just go wherever we want. Um, that's up to the abbot. The abbot chooses. Um, okay, now you're going to go here. Now you're going to go here. And so even if we want to go off into solitude, that's not, that's not our choice. I mean, we, you know, if you're giving him a shoulder massage, say, would it be okay if I you know, <laughs> just like a foot massage? Ajahn, what do you think if I went off into solitude? Just for, He's not hinting this, at this, all. And, uh, <laughs> and then you might catch him in a good mood. You know, he says, oh, sure, that would be great. Go. But, but uh, it's often not what we want to do, which is or what we think is going to be best for us which is really going to be the most beneficial, but often someone has a bit more objectivity. You can see, uh, well, I, you're really getting into the communal aspect here, and it's very good. However, I think you really would benefit from a bit of solitude. Or the opposite, you know, people who love being up in the mountains and really hate dealing with people, draw them back into the community, force them to face whatever it is that is, that is uncomfortable being in community. I mean, you live in community mm-hmm. with people from all different nationalities. Um, stuff comes up, right? <laughs> right? You feel like sitting in meditation in a hut overlooking the Mekong River. Think, oh, I feel so pure-hearted. And you go back to our main community, and it's like, God, that, why is he doing? He's not supposed to do that. He's what? What's wrong with these people? Yes, right? And uh, you realize, oh, all the you know, causes and conditions, you know, we react differently, you know, when the causes and conditions are supportive for, for less activity, then mind really quiets down, and that's very, very important, extremely important, because that's the basis for developing insight. But then we need to be able to bring that back into a more active way of, of interacting with other human beings and say, is this something that we can then incorporate into every activity of life? So, in that respect, our two traditions are, are quite similar. Uh, uh, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa tended to be, in our uh, respective traditions, the one who attracted the most Western disciples, and then Lama Zopa, who inherited um, mm-hmm. your tradition, keeps a pretty tight hand on who goes where mm-hmm. and sending people, mm-hmm. you know, often against their wishes, and you just have to accept that, mm-hmm. and then th- through being forced into, sometimes being on retreat, sometimes being forced into group situations or active situations, then tends to create a, a well-rounded, polished, balanced mm-hmm. uh, approach. And exactly what Achan's saying, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who was a Dutch monk for many years, and you know, very zealous at the very beginning, and he started studying Buddhism, and then God ordained, and then he literally decided he was going to strap himself to a board to remain sitting upright and meditate until he got enlightened. And the minute our teacher Lamiyashi heard it, he was like, get his butt down here. And he sent him off to run businesses to support the monastery, like carpet stores in Kathmandu, which was the opposite of what this monk thought he wanted to do. And he made him do that for like the next 25 years. And then he said, you can go do retreat. So it often happens that we're told 
because our impulse of what we think we want is usually running away from what is best. And then vice versa, somebody who's addicted to all their devices gets thrown into some hut somewhere with no electricity. (laughs) So it's a little bit like that, which is like the value of having a teacher who really knows your mind well, because the human capacity for denial and justification is nearly infinite, as we know, and we can think we're doing something for spiritual reasons, and we're just completely kidding ourselves. So yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you have support for that? So if they send you somewhere, like you have someone you can talk to? Or, or do you just kind of just suck it up and do it? So um, in, in my organization, we now have something like 170 different Dharma centers and different activities worldwide. So for a lot of us, our direct access to like the spiritual director of the organization is not what it used to be 20 or 25 years ago where you had a lot more access. However, there's a lot more in between of like elders and seniors and other teachers that we have. So we never really feel like we're without resources. And and then there's a network of just those of us who are peers and friends, you know, other senior monastics, other senior teachers. I have a lot of really close friends that are, you know, senior teachers in my own and others' traditions that when I feel like I'm really stuck, somehow I've got them to talk to. And I feel like even though they aren't necessarily my teachers, there's so much wisdom there that's accessible to me. So I rely on that a lot. Like it was interesting for a number of years, I was resident teacher at various centers and felt quite isolated. Often I would be sent out to the hinterlands of who knows where. You know, I was in central British Columbia for three years. No senior students, no other monastics. And it was really hard because I felt like I didn't have anybody that was a peer. I ended up in that situation becoming like best friends with the local Catholic priest because he was like super open-minded. We were like, wow, we're just the same except our religion. Like we're celibate, monastics, serving beings. And then the fact that we had completely different doctrines didn't matter at all. And he was my real, you know, we were real support for each other. He got to be my closest friend. So sometimes it's something like that, that you just look for a peer, even outside your tradition, if you're in some isolated place. I'm a big believer in Skype. You know, I Skype with my friends all the time. Because we're all spread out over the world at these 170 different centers, being a teacher somewhere else. Skype is awesome, and it really helps a lot. I mean, it's not as good as sitting there drinking a cup of tea, but it really helps. So yeah, I I never feel like I'm without resource, even though I have limited, maybe, access to, you know, my own teachers. But I don't feel that I need that as much as I did when I was a pure beginner either. You know, I feel... And and inner resources build up too, but yeah. Yeah, good question. Should we deal with a couple of the written ones and then meditate? Do you want to, should we do a walking meditation? Oh, we could do, sure. Yeah, just because we're on a full belly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can. And then we'll do um, Tonglen maybe after the afternoon break. Yeah. So we don't want to spend the whole day merely talking. So we'd like to do a bit of meditation. And from the time of the Buddha, and especially in our forest tradition, walking meditation is an integral part of our daily practice. And especially after a, uh, a lunch, or early in the morning, or late at night, times when we might naturally be sleepy or drowsy in meditation, then it's very good to do walking meditation so that we, we don't uh, just get into the habit of of sitting, relaxing, and then kind of nodding off, right? That's not, not a good habit uh, to fall into while meditating. So walking meditation is very effective, and almost everything that we can develop while doing sitting meditation, you can develop while walking back and forth. So f- maybe for the next period of time, uh, we'll find a, uh, a place either inside or outside on the grounds, maybe... T- 20 steps long, 15, 20, 25 steps long. It's helpful if there's a beginning and end, so we're not just kind of walking around and wandering. But uh, I'll demonstrate, so when we get up from our seats, then even this transition from getting up 
is an opportunity for establishing awareness in our body, you know, awareness of your feet, balance of the body. Especially if we've been meditating already, then you don't want to just pop up. But if we get up very intentionally, gradually, and even this transition then you know, becomes part of the meditation. So then we may go out and say we find a relatively level, convenient place to, to start. And then you can place your hands either in front or behind, whatever's comfortable. And then start walking but walking with very clear awareness as your feet come in contact with the floor or the ground, really noticing that, the movement of the legs, the balance of the body. As we bring our awareness into our body, naturally we start to become aware of our breathing. Breathing in and stepping, moving quietly. One of the challenging things about walking meditation is that our eyes are open. You know, when we're sitting, then uh, even with our eyes closed, there's a lot to be distracted by internally. But once we open our eyes, there's a whole lot more that can p potentially draw our attention away. We're walking, you know, looking at that, or looking at this, you know, looking at that, a bird, a tree, a house. So every time that happens, that's fine, but just kind of notice, oh, our attention has strayed, and just kind of persistently and gently bring it back to you know, this area right around our body, paying attention to moods, thoughts, but always coming back to the movement of our body as the anchor in the present moment. And then something as simple and as natural as walking back and forth becomes very peaceful, becomes uh, very pleasant. And then gradually, uh, mindfulness becomes more continuous. Mm -hmm. Our mind and hearts become a bit more calm, peaceful, and uh, we experience a sense of serenity. So let's do that for 20 minutes. Yeah? Yeah, sounds good. We'll, we'll ring the bell, and when people come back in, then Venerable Tenzin will lead us in a Tibetan meditation. <coughs>